welcome to you talking with Greg. <laughs> and I have my first guest here, uh, John Verbeke, my hero of the Academy, John Verbeke, uh, who uh, I'm modeling this off of uh, after Voices with Verbeke. I was happy to be your first, I think, uh, published guest on that. Yep, yep. Reality. Yep. So we're, we're doing a little bit of, of modeling there. So welcome, John. Thank you, Greg. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. Uh, me too. And, you know, I, I thought we could talk a little bit about Dialogos. Uh, right. And maybe that gives, I'm sure the people listening to this will have a sense of you and your journey or, but, you know, the emergence of Dialogos uh, kind of sets the stage for really what this whole podcast is about. So I thought maybe we could have that as a jumping off point. Sure. Uh, sure. Uh, so, um, well, first of all, I'll make a distinction. I think there's a practice we can engage in, which is called dialectic. Right. And dialectic isn't like a, a recipe or an algorithm. Dialectic is a practice that can increase the chances that dialogos will take take shape. Right. Because right. the point about the, one of the central features of dialogos is, you know, that there's a logos that emerges between us that has a life of its own. Um, and, and, and a way of thinking about that is, um, I often say, you know, we're in Dialogos if we're getting to places, we're having insights that we couldn't get to individually. We somehow form two of us or three of us or four of us. We've done this with Chris and we've done it with yep. other people where we get something like a collective flow state and we get to places, we get, an, we get emerging intelligibility that we couldn't get to on our own. And that has, uh, that has a normative value for us. It gives us guidance, both collectively and individually, in the cultivation of wisdom and trying to, you know, collect and curate and coordinate practices for overcoming self-deception and enhancing and meaning in life. So, I mean, Beautiful. Original... actually, we can uh, go, go back. For, so for me now, I've internalized the concept of the base of sentience. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the base of sentience was a dialogos moment between us on the... World not exactly. That's a perfect example. So you and I were on on, on untang. If you don't mind, I'll say it. We, of we were course, on yeah, no, we were on, <laughs> They were doing untangling the world not. I approached you, and you were very excited about it. And I approached you because I said, like, I want to present this material. I normally present it monologically as like a as a like a professor. Listen to the word professing. <laughs> and I said, I, I I would like to not. I would like to present this material, but I also want to exemplify and promote right, a, a different way of trying to make our way through this, namely this practice of doing it dialectically and hoping that Dialogos will catch. And we were doing this thing where we were, we were, you know, try, we were going through an argument I was making about different kinds of qualia and consciousness. Yep. And we, and, and I don't even know how it started, I, I, but together we got this insight about what we come, what we came to call valence qualia and it, you know, and it was, it was, it, 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 I didn't come up with it. You didn't come up with it. We dynamically came up with it and it, it plugged our work together. And then it ramified back through my work and back through your work in powerful ways. And when you, when that happens, you just, you feel like you're touching something. I mean, this is the Socratic idea. You feel like you're touching something sacred, something Definitely. that's deeply profound and transformative. Totally. And for me, uh, yeah. And then it carries, it echoes. And then, and one of the things that I hope for this process um, that, and I mean, very broadly, whatever this process is, there's a movement going on. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of shift. Um, for me, there, there was a real 
echo of continuity. So I held it and then it fit and then I metabolized it and now it's a, and it sort of grew. So it's like this diamond that emerged and yeah. then maintained resonance across a wide variety of different things. And, and so, you know, that's beautiful stuff. Uh, and really that's, um, it doesn't, that doesn't come with writing. Well, I mean, you can get it somewhat writing papers, but the intersection of the dialectic uh, that does create a particular new context for it. And I hope that this, that's why I want to do this, is that it really spreads a different kind of academic inquiry. It opens up a different kind of education. It opens up a different kind of community, it seems to me. Yes, very much. I mean, it, it really does. It, it, it permeates and percolates, right, in, in, the, in these powerful ways you're pointing to. And it really, it changes the way in which intelligibility emerges and it also changes the way uh, uh, the way in which people have access to involvement. Uh, right. One of the things that I've been impressed by is other people. First of all, you get these dialogues, and then you get a meta dialogue between the various dialogues, forming right. a network of these. And you also get people watching it and saying that they feel like they they are participating, not just spectating. And I think that's very very important if we're going to start to get people involved in the kind of sense making. Uh, that in a collective and distributed way, if we're gonna address some of the thorny issues facing us right now. Totally. In fact, I was just listening to a presentation that Zach Stein gave, and he was talking right. about how do we unfail uh, the, the potential of the digital age. And, and, you know, and this seems to me to be exactly what he would uh, likely point to in relationship to if it can be channeled and organized in a particular way. But it seems to be that we are seeding that exact practice because it's face-to-face, -face, it's engaging, it's dialogical, it can network across a wide variety of different emergent um, systems. And that seems to me is the kind of process that actually has a chance to make a, a real difference. I agree. I think Zach's idea that we're sort of in a, we need education in a time between worlds is deeply appropriate. We've lost We've lost the deep connections between education and enculturation, education and intergenerational transmission of wisdom. Uh, we've lost that and we've lost it to our detriment. I agree, with, I agree very strongly with Zach's uh, proposals around that. So one of the things I'd like us to do really sort of then uh, frame this conversation and throw out uh, a concept and then we can riff off it for the next hour or whatever. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, so this is I, where you, you know, you know, this is where my heart is. And I think this is where your heart is too. So um, right. here's the idea. We are in search of a coherent naturalistic ontology uh, that can revitalize the human soul and spirit in the 21st century. Right. I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a good posing of the problem. I mean, uh, in some ways that's the central problem I mean, on my Twitter right account, on my profile, so I'm, you know, I'm trying to bridge between science and spirituality. And your, your question, I think, is exactly right. Uh, let, let me give you one minute for why I think that's right, because absolutely, I think we can talk, we can, we should talk about these practices, like we've done about the practice of dialectic into dialogos. That's good. We can talk about mindfulness practices. We can talk about practices for cult cultivating. Uh, rationality, active open-mindedness, this is all good and we can curate them into ecologies of practices and that's all very important. But ultimately, ecologies need a home. They need a home that um, sustains them, that valorizes them, that guides them. And that's what a worldview is. Right. That's what I would argue a worldview is. And there's some pretty good emerging cognitive psychology and cognitive science about worldviews. Mm. And I think what you're putting your finger on is and this is something I think we agree on, our, our, our current worldview is not 
doing it. Right. Our current right. worldview is not doing that. Um, and and, and the, the terms you use, like the, the terms you use, let's, let's look at those two terms to just an example of what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. you know, you know, soul and spirit, they provoke one of two reactions. They provoke, Oh, stop with all that woo woo crap. Right. I'm a yep, scientist yep. or they believe, Oh yes. You know, and what we're talking about is we're talking about magical properties and things that, right. That I've always believed. And, 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 and both of those are not helping. I, 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 you're right. They're not helping with the problems. That's what I would argue. And so how can we get a worldview that homes the cultivation of what I would call wisdom and meaning in life such that there is a intellectually, cognitively, existentially, scientifically respectable way that is not useless, but highly functioning to talk these terms, to use these yep. terms again. Right. And, and so naturalism, to my mind, is an attempt to propose a worldview that will do just that. If I understood you correctly? Totally. Uh, and in fact, well, yes, uh, I want to I add the word coherent here for a particular reason. Of course. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, and and what I'm speaking to is this. I believe that we have lost touch with coherentism in a particular way as a particular kind of philosophical. I mean, Aristotle and Plato are basically coherentist in terms of the way yeah. they're thinking about philosophy. Um, yeah. We then build the modern scientific uh, epistemological system and we move to a correspondent theory of truth, which is unbelievably powerful in particular ways. Um, but it dismantles the great chain of being and it, and it undermines Christianity yeah. some ways in very appropriate ways, of course. But um, I would argue, and I think you would definitely, you would agree with this. If I look out across the scientific landscape, you know, it's a it's a chaotic, fragmented, pluralistic landscape. It's a it's yeah. a the postmodernists really describe the the modernist landscape pretty well. Yeah, and so um, I have a short video on this, which where about, uh, but it's it's actually just taken from my introductory core, my introductory lecture to cognitive science, mm. which is let's take another term related uh, to spirit and soul. In fact, often people almost use these terms interchangeably. And I know this is a term you want to talk about, mind. So when I look at this, what I see is different disciplines talking about this in fundamentally with fundamentally different ontologies, with fundamentally different epistemologies. So the neuroscientist is talking about neurons and neurodynamics, et cetera, and they're using fMRI and EEG. And then you get the machine learning person who's not talking about that at all. They're talking about neural nets or learning algorithms and they're running simulations. Or you have the psychologist, and you know this better than I, trying to say, well, we're talking about it, the mind, but we're talking about it in behavior. And I know that's already problematic, right? And then what do, what do, what do they do? Well, they run experiments and they do statistical analysis. Or what about the linguist who studies the mind because the mind is carried in language and they don't do any of these things, they do other things. Or what about the anthropologist who studies the mind as culture and they, do, they write ethnographies and do, right? And so we have this completely fragmented, completely equivocal presentation of something that is both supposed to be central to our self-understanding what, so if I ask you what a mind is, you can't give me an integrated unified answer. In fact, one of the things that, psycho uh, that cognitive science tries to do is to try and figure out how can we reintegrate all of these together 
and I'm going to use your adjective so we can give a coherent account of what the mind is. Because if we don't, we're going to we're going to have a fragmented right account of mind. It's going to lead us to equivocation, confusion. It's going to undermine our existential project of self-interpretation. Beautiful. Uh, you know, basically, so I hear that and I go on my own journey, basically the exact same uh, journey into the, that problem through psychotherapy. Okay? Right. So I get right. into psychotherapy and we have all of these different models. Then I ask the question, well, shouldn't psychotherapy be anchored to the science of psychology? You know, that seems reasonable, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like yeah. medicine. I mean, it's got its problems, but medicine's anchored to the science of human biology. And if we're in yeah. Western science, then that sort of makes sense, right? And then I then rediscover the science, the problem of psychology, and then trail it all the way back to the exact same. In 1927, Lev Vygotsky identifies the crisis of psychology. Yeah, 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 okay? exactly. And he does the exact same thing. He's got the Freudians are talking about unconscious process. The behaviorists are talking about behavioral processes. The gestaltists are talking about precognitive processes. Yeah. The functionalists and the structuralists, they're all talking about completely different ontological reference points. He doesn't use that term exactly, but basically. And, yeah. and we're now... And, and now it's a horse race between the paradigms and, and ta equivocation and talking past each other. So in 1927, it's the same. <laughs> it's a replication yeah, of yeah, the same basic yeah, issue. Yeah, you know? yeah. um, and so this gets me to coherent naturalism, which is my basic argument is that, yeah, we're the enlightenment with what it did and all of its beauty at one level, it gave us a really screwed up grammar for matter mind relation. Yes. Yes. You know? yeah. Uh, and it didn't help it clarify. It then gives ontological and epistemological authority to science. Okay, but it doesn't help us understand the relationship between science and our folk uh, ontology and the social construction of reality. Yes. You know? And so it's just it's a cluster of confusion. And the sciences, at the physical sciences and biological sciences, they get somewhat organized. But when you get up into psychology and the cognitive sciences, we have ontological chaos. Yes, very much. I agree with everything you just said there. Um, yeah, and, and so, I, I mean, and th this shows up. Well, you you know, uh, I'm in both cognitive psychology and in cognitive science, and I see this, you know, I, I love my department, and I love my university, and, and I love my discipline. So I'm not saying this as somebody from the outside, but, you know, we're suffering the replication crisis, and this is part of the fact, and many people, oh, we got to improve the statistics and lab, or, yeah, do all that, and I, but there's other people that are saying, no, no, we don't have an overarching framework. Be and, and what we do is, right, uh, is and this is what I see, we terrifically reward innovators and we d disregard and ignore integrators. Totally. Well, right? because, and, right, no, that's the, because they got institution, the empirical methodological structure gets institutionalized. Actually, you can yeah. read psychology books and essentially they say that, well, it's like, we're interested in science and really we're interested in the operationalized methodological process of defining a research program that then yields some interesting findings and then gets you grants to produce exactly. them. I call this the sandcastle problem. Like we build right. all these sandcastles that are, yeah. that, that can be beautiful and great, but they're really anchored to a particular operational set of research paradigms and, and they can build their doc students and everything. But if the next doc, the next wave will come in and the next generation will build sandcastles all over again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You have these very shallow ontologies uh, and very shallow epistemologies that can't withstand, uh, you know, uh, long-term scrutiny. 
And so, I mean, we, 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 and we see the rise and fall of the fads and we see the rise and fall of constructs, you know, Bowmeister's willpower that, you know, becomes prevalent and then suffers replicate, replication issues, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and what I've noticed is the areas of psychology that are more philosophically informed are more willing to talk to philosophical communities and pursue integration. For example, the work I do in cognitive psychology on yep. rationality, mm. right? You get experimental work that is robust and doesn't fall prey to mm -hmm. the replication mm -hmm. crisis or, 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 you know, uh, a lot of the, you know, the really, the, the, the well-developed work of, you know, a Bowlby and attachment theory, and you get, again, robust replication there. And then you compare it to these other areas where you say, well, what's the overarching theoretical framework behind this? Oh, well, there isn't. There's just a few previous experiments, and we've got sort of some ideas and constructs. And it's like, that's going to fall apart. If you try to do that in any other science, they're going to tell you that's going to fall apart in 10 years. That's just going to fall apart. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that's exactly uh, the problem. We psychologists are too hungry chasing after effects mm -hmm. and not worrying about integrating uh, explanations together. I mean, you know more about that than I do. I'm just telling you what yeah, I, I mean, see. No, it's a, it, I mean, it's, you know, it's my passion at, at two levels. One in the sense that it um, it's a, it's an enormous problem that's obvious if you look at it, and I'm amazed at how already sort of inoculated the system is against looking at it. Like, it's yeah. like, well, we thought yeah. about it, and then there's no problem. Nothing to see here, even though, no, there's a problem. It was like, yeah. well, but we decided to, like, institutionalize over it through empirical methodology, so we'll look the other way, you know. And then the, uh, I guess there are really three things, because then the issue is a actually there is a coherent underbelly here at least that's my you know that's my calling and it's an unbelievably broad potential and my connection to you broadens it out enormously so i'm like yes there's a science of psychology it organizes and it jumps over to psychotherapy and actually this is a huge space of confusion that if we can get organized the the amount of then potential organization and the fact that then i can then go adjacent to your work and think about cognitive science, the meaning crisis, West Eastern yeah, philosophy, yeah. and that intersection. And then it's just sort of like, you rotate that around and you see these two things come together. You see the academy and its floundering, and then you look out at the actual meaning crisis, right? The cultural yeah. status of what it's trying to look for, the emptiness of the soul spirit dynamic and the confusion with what science is. And you really see this incredible vortex of like, energy and vacuum and and potential it's a really fascinating i mean that's why i love being alive it's like, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. what a story <laughs> but i mean your point um and, and I, I know i mean i appreciate your enthusiasm as a as a co-theorist and researcher but we also I, i've also seen you uh tremendously moved by the suffering that all of this is creating right uh, i mean and you know it in some ways even more intimately than i do because you're a practicing psychotherapist um but you know you, you know chris and i christopher master pietro and i we've talked about all the symptoms of the meeting crisis and how pervasive they are and how they're getting worse and how that that symptomology is so you know so so sort of cognitively hamstringing us that we're we're, we're just seeming incapable of turning to these really pressing environmental and socioeconomic and political issues that seem to be growing in their uh, in their sort of extinction threat capabilities rapidly. Um, and so that's that's why the, everything we're talking about here and we, we, we do get interested in it and that's good uh, you know because you know because we're theorists and we, we, we like that. 
But everything we're talking about here is precisely not just or not even primarily an academic issue. We are academics, but we think this issue is not an academic issue. This is an existential in both senses of the word issue uh, that needs to be fundamentally addressed. And so that's why talking about this stuff and trying to get the kind of clarity that you're pursuing is not, again, just a theoretical point. It's a point about trying. I mean, it sounds pretentious. It sounds full of hubris, but, you know, it's about trying to create or help to create, participate in creating the kind of cultural frameworks that will save the world. Totally. I mean, I know that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, the hubris, there is that dynamic, but I will say the, the, the phenomenological down to my cells clarity of both the is of the problem and the ought of the need for it to yeah. occur, um, you know, allows me to be like, yeah, no, this is it. This is it. <laughs> and, and I know that as my masculine theorist physicist head, I mean, I can see this very clearly and my feminist therapist heart watching all the people suffer uh, across all the different issues. There's the meaning and mental health crisis suffering where people yeah. eat themselves alive in their souls and they don't know how to be grounded and the opportunity. I mean, I feel so fortunate. I'm able to taste experience and glow. You know, it's like, oh my yeah. God, you know, I'm just yeah, alive yeah. and it's great. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, you have the right frame of reference. And so many people are eaten up inside by neurotic loops and reciprocal narrowing and just the, you know, they yeah. lack encouragement and they, they don't know how to, and, and it's so easy to get stressed and overloaded. There's that. And then there's all the macro level structural problems that you speak to and people like Daniel Smuckenberger and Jordan Hall and all the other systematists and the intersection yeah. of all that is, no, this is not an academic exercise. It's like, what the f are we doing? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, really yeah. in a big, big way. So... So I wanted to put that on the table and really light it up because, you know, we, we're ultimately, we're going to be talking about sort of ontology and worldview. But the point about that is, um, like, again, the connection is the worldview is our ultimate home for where we will engage in the cognitive cultural practices and the cultural cognitive practices that will alleviate or help to alleviate all this suffering. Uh, that so, we're talking so, about. So that's why your original question, I mean, I think we've unpacked it actually kind of nicely here uh, about, you know, well, it, can we come up with an ontology that sews things back together, that reintegrates and reintegrates in a way that affords the kind of individual and collective transformation that's going to alleviate suffering? That's exactly yeah, what I yeah. take your question to be. That's exactly what the question is, uh, because uh, a huge amount of the suffering is the shriveling of the soul and spirit on the yes. one hand, and yeah. it's a function of the overloaded, fragmented, chaotic system that's driving it in 6,000 different directions that leads, as I just listened to Zach's thing, and he was like, well, actually what this leads to is nihilism, narcissism, and chaos at the level yeah. of yeah. You know, yeah. fundamental confusion. and. And, and he's, so, he's right to pair those two together. Sorry, absolutely. go ahead. Rick. No, go ahead, but I just want to, yeah, that's, yeah. And then, and then, so, and then I, that's what I see in us between me and you now. So there's, there's two issues there. That's this bridge or many issues, but it's a, it's a scientific humanistic bridge. It's the humanistic concern of the ontology of being. And I want to help people understand that, you know, 
uh, you can do all this cool stuff on quantum mechanics. It doesn't really matter that much in relationship to hanging out with your wife. There's an ontology of your life. Okay. There's an ontology of your life and the periodic table and those, and we don't help people understand that those two things are different and we can help individuals understand that we can opt into a scientific ontology build a scientific ontology that goes from fundamental physical theories into chemical theories and the biological theories into neurocognitive behavioral theories into the emergence of yeah. anthropology yeah. human psychology and the cognitive cultural grammar of our histories both ancient and modern to today with a level of clarity and and allow us to connect to a scientific ontology that and then draws our understanding to our subjective folk ontology in a way that enriches it rather than alienates and fragments it. Exactly. That's, that's beautifully well said. Yeah. So yeah, a way that, you know, maybe even properly, we, especially we go back to the original etymology that educates it, that draws forth from it and tutors it and helps to transform it in a way that is felt to not be trespassing on the autonomy uh, uh, of, uh, you know, the, that, that our capacity, our soul, our capacity for uh, <clears throat> realizing our proper place in the world. Right. Um, so I, I think that's all very well said. And, and so wh- how would you like to get there now? I think we've really set up the context of this mm-hmm. very well together. I think we're getting into Dialogos, the way things are really starting to weave and sew and emerge. So I think we've set the context really well. Where would you like to start? Uh, like now, now we've done a zoom out, a zoom in right. about you know th- this issue around a kind of naturalism that revalorizes things like soul and spirit, wisdom and meaning. Those are the, mm-hmm. the four I would like to talk about. But go ahead. Beautiful. Well, let's actually, yeah, naturalism is a great place to start. Uh, if memory serves, your dissertation was on uh, yes. naturalism and science. Yeah, is that yeah, right? Yes, yes, okay. yes, that's right. So. Um, yeah, so why don't we, maybe let's start then, look at sort of the enlightenment, let's look at the concept of science, physicalism, naturalism, relative yeah. to dual worldviews, and see if you and I are in full, you know, are in agreement on some of the diagnoses of what the problems are. Um, right. and, and the reason I put coherent naturalism is because I think that there's a general sort of common sense naturalism that a lot of scientists and philosophers uh, abide by, and yeah. and that with good reason, it's but it's incoherent. Yeah. It, it doesn't it doesn't jive, and yeah. it certainly yeah. doesn't jive on the matter mind problem. Like what is mind? So if we can come maybe naturalism yeah. and then frame mind, and then we can get into things like wisdom and other kinds of. How does that sound? That sounds great. Um, so would I mean I would maybe like to we could begin by maybe proposing how we're going to use it, how maybe, and do some dialectic around it, what we're going to mean by this term naturalism. Because what I hear you saying, and and I'm in agreement with this, is, well, yeah, we have sort of a concept, but we need to really educate it because it's not coherent, ultimately, and it's not set up to handle this problem that you and I are talking about here. So... Yeah, you're right. I did my dissertation way back in the before times. We had just discovered <laughs> fire um, on, on what I call the naturalistic imperative in cognitive science. Um, but and I was influenced by a bunch of people and, and sort of let me give sort of a standard thing and then how I was already trying to inflect it. And maybe that will serve as a bridge. Mm-hmm. So the, the standard model of naturalism is that 
when you do something like you're proposing a particular theory or even set of entities, right? Um, that you do it in a way that is consistent with the natural sciences. Um, and so, first of all, we need to pause there because naturalism is not the same thing, therefore, right from the beginning with reductionism. So reductionism is the claim that everything that you're going to say can ultimately be replaced by, reduced to the entities and the forces and the processes within physics. Okay. Um, Let's call that physical reductionism. Okay. Physical or physicalism or physical reductionism. That's, that's the term I generally use. And I'm yeah. definitely fighting hard against physical reductionism. That's what yeah. And, uh, yeah. I'll also use the term materialistic flatland. I borrow Ken Wilber there. That's another yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, angle on that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, yeah, so let's go in there. So I also have, have got arguments and reasons deeply influenced, even going back to Jerry Fodor, on, on which I think uh, I think philosophically and historically reductionism is bankrupt. Um, and, and so uh, now that doesn't immediately license idealism or dualism or magicalism or supernaturalism, because there's a big difference between saying anything I propose has to be consistent with the natural science from, from saying everything I propose has to be reducible to okay. the existing natural sciences. Because yes. if, you had, if you'd continually followed that, there wouldn't be chemistry and there wouldn't be biology, right? And we're trying to turn psychology into a science. And that means it's not going to be biology. It's not going to be chemistry. It's not going to be physics. It's going to be consistent with them. We're not going to propose things that are ultimate, well, to my mind at least, that are ultimately inconsistent right. with. So, what, so, so, right. so, yeah, there's vertical consistency. And, and that yes. vertical suggests some kind of hierarchy, and we can talk some about that. Yes. Uh, da Daniel Dennett has a nice analysis in Darwin's Dangerous Idea. Good reductionism basically is this vertical consistency. Greedy reductionism is the, the deconstruction of the layers to the layers yep. beneath them that ob obliviate the other layers. So we can, I want to, I certainly do want to, as a naturalist, I would say that I am anchored to and positioned to be consistent with um, the physical sciences, definitely. Um, but I, I would also say that there is no way that the explanatory grammar of physics and the descriptive grammar of physics is up to the task in any way, shape, or form for the level of analysis that I'm operating on. I agree with that, but I, I, I and I don't know if you'll agree with this next move, although I made a similar argument to the other before and you seem to like it. So most people understand that epistemically, like you just said, here's the epistemological grammar, it's inadequate. And I don't deny any of that, but I take a stronger stance. I think that, I don't even think that, you know, I take an ontological stance. I also right. resist. I, I think that there are there, there's a hierarchy to being itself, if you want to put it that way, mm -hmm. um, and that goes you know that's influenced by you know some of the stuff coming out of speculative realism, object oriented ontology, uh, discussions about you know different kinds of objects. Morton's talk about hyperobjects. Uh, we can go into some of those in detail if you want. But the basic sure. the basic argument goes like something like this. But wait. It can't be just an epistemic thing we're no. talking about, because yep. if the gauges and my eyes and my brain and the language I'm using don't really exist, then all of the conclusions I'm drawing about the bottom basement level of my ontology also don't really exist. Beautiful. And then how does that science, the science, look, at the, at the, at the, on, in the ontological basement, 
the particles are identical. The forces are the same. The laws are equivalent. But the science depends on information. It depends on differences. It depends on measurement. It depends on real objects measuring real patterns. Another idea from Daniel Dennett, right? And so I think it's not only an epistemic difference or even epistemological difference we're talking about when we're resisting reductionism. I'm also saying, no, no, that's pointing to something deep about a misconception in our ontology. Exactly. I think ontology is so, also and, and richer. This is Roy Bashkar as a critical realist, Roy Bashkar basically makes this case. Uh, and I'm, yeah. I find my system allied quite nicely. Uh, the, the, the underlying onto-epistemology of the ontic reality very right. much aligns with Roy Bashkar's critical realism. And, and right. that gives, and that is the stratification of nature is not an epistemological entity, it's an ontological entity. Exactly, exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, and really, I would say that's actually what we have on the, our scientific knowledge is an onto epistemological understanding of the actual ontic reality. Yes. Actually, yes. So, this, so I then cluster onto epistemology as our beliefs about the ontic reality. Excellent. I think that's, that's good language. And so for me, uh, one of that, what that means is we have to take seriously, not only the relationship between the different disciplines, we have to take seriously the ontological relationship between the different ontic levels yeah. uh, and figure out. Uh, uh, and of course your work points towards this and, you know, and how do we figure out bottom up emergence and what does that look like? and top-down emanation, and what does that look like? And notice the language is starting to sound very Neoplatonic, and I don't think that's a, a, mis a mistake, and I don't think that's just happening by happenstance. I think there's deep reasons why we, we find ourselves moving back into that kind of language. So for me, right, I, we have this rich uh, view. Uh, uh, now, I, 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 in fact, I like the fact that you call it naturalism. I've been... I also want to distinguish it from materialism. Uh, I'm going to make a rather bold claim. I don't think anybody's a materialist, at least in the sciences. I haven't met a materialist. Okay. Uh, I, I, take, I take materialism to be the claim that what ultimately exists is matter. Mm. Um, and that's, I mean, we, don't, we haven't really believed that for a very long time. We think there's matter and energy, space and time. We think there are causal relationships. We think there are real structures. Given my previous argument, those structural functional organizations are real. We think information is real. We think knowledge is real. What would it be to say that knowledge doesn't really exist because it's not made out of quarks? That's a bizarre and weird thing. Well, it's ultimately made out of quarks. No, it's not. The knowledge qua knowledge is not made out of quarks. Right? It's the pattern in the quarks, right? And with the, not in it, only the pattern of the quarks, but the pattern of the pattern of the patterns, right? Totally. That, huh, right? And so, you know, and, and when we start talking, and when we start talking about things like evolution, you know, I think evolution is a real thing. Is it a material entity? Well, it's not an object. It doesn't have a spatial-temporal location, right? It, it's right. right. It, it, yep. right. So, and this is, you know, and Morton talks a lot about that in hyper objects. Like, you know, we're talking like global warming. Is that a, a real a real thing? Well, it sure is. Where is it located? Right. Right. Okay. And so we're talking, trying to talk about as if the world is made up of spatial-temporal lumps of stuff. And that's ultimately all that there is. I don't know anybody in any science that, I mean, many scientists will self-declare as materialists, but I don't think they know what they're talking about. That's the incoherence you're talking about. That's not 
the ontology. We have dynamical systems. We have autopoetic things. We have we have evolution of living things. Like my gosh, we are way beyond a materialist ontology, especially Beautiful. if we have abandoned reductionism. Okay. All right. So actually, so now, uh, so now let me pick that up and see how you drive with this on. So the uh, let me lay out the ontology of the TOK. Okay. Okay. And, please, and, and please, so, please. So, um, so tree of knowledge is, is a, it, it situates itself as a theory of scientific knowledge, okay? So it's right. really, it's about knowledge, uh, and then it places, it's a theory about scientific knowledge, all right? Where scientific knowledge, as you said, is actually then in the culture person plane of existence, which actually is these propositional legitimizing statements, okay? Right. Right. So scientific, it's justifi systems of justification, where right. the epistemology is empiricism, and then the scientific ontology refers to the ontological claims about the ontic reality. Right, okay? right, right. And then what we decide in sort of a platonic justified true belief, whereby we build a scientific model, we empirically test it with a scientific epistemology, and then we say, oh, that's reality. Here's the periodic table of the elements. That's a set of ontological claims that have been right. justified through the empirical method or in scientific epistemology that then maps onto the ontic reality. Right, okay? right. So that's the that's sort of the it's actually an on it's an ontological interpretation of Plato's justified true belief. Right, right, right. And it places the human knower in the universe knowing about shit. <laughs> right, 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 okay? right. And and then it places modern science in a particular kind of historical justification. Okay. Um, and I was just reminded, and I'm not, more than ever, I'm like, well, actually, I'm an American psychologist. And what I mean by that is I was just listening to the history of some islamic scholar and i'm like i don't know anything about islamic scholar right, 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 right? right. You know, like, these guys with these theories and notions and everything it's like oh that's a whole set of systems of justification i know nothing about you know so it's just right, a, right. it's humbling at some level i'm always humbled by that little i know anyway so but within the modern scientific and by that i mean galileo into newton into what becomes sort of the enlightenment scientific natural science yeah, yeah. enterprise right you and i are in the same basic ballpark there so, and then what happens with that system is that it begins to map. And the first thing it maps is matter in motion. So the right. first paradigmatic mapping is Newton building calculus and mapping matter in motion. Right. And this then becomes a particular kind of exemplar of scientific ontology, epistemology kind of notion. Okay. And then we add Kant who then adds the human epistemological phenomenological blend to that. So he, yep. he's like, well, we have the categories of mind and we're perceiving matter in motion. And then somehow we have a human epistemological sense-making of the phenomenological nomina that's a matter in motion that is somehow tied together in a right. rational imperialistical way. You know? right. But it never gets synthesized. Okay. Um, then what I would say is then what happens is then there are all these possible, I mean, you get Herbert Spencer, you get all those systematizers, but none of them really work. Our lineage, I think both of our lineage actually, is really an emergent naturalism, okay? Mm -hmm. And the emergent naturalists in the 1920s, like Conrad Lloyd Morgan, a, a comparative psychologist of all things, uh, yeah. built a emergent naturalist sort of movement, um, but they can't get a foothold in it because there's so many different versions. This is the problem that, that an emergent naturalism, you can slice map the territory in lots of different ways and it doesn't create an amenable test or at least they couldn't figure out ways to create amenable testing 
Okay. Right. So, so then logical empiricism comes along, tries to cut the legs out from this and reduce everything, building off of early Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell. And they basically yeah. then are like, well, we're just going to have statements of fact and empirical facts, and we're going to logic and empiricism. You know, well, that yep. blows up, obviously. Okay. Right. So what I think we're in the process of is we're revitalizing an emergent naturalism. Okay. Yes, I agree. You know, uh, yep. So. So then the tree of knowledge comes along and the, what the tree of knowledge does do is it, it locates the history of the problem of psychology. It says, okay, you have a matter mind problem. You know, you have Kant phenomenology and Newtonian matter in motion and nobody ever figured out a way to put that stuff together. You know, right. uh, and, and so we got so many different, well, but now an updated 21st century emergent naturalism is possible. That's, yeah. that's what, a, that actually is a coherent emergent naturalism. Okay? Yeah, right. uh, and what the tree of knowledge says is that we can now trace with Big Bang, uh, quantum mechanics and general relativity at the physical level, we can drop to the core ontological uh, singularity, what I call a pure energy information singularity at the Big Bang. Okay. Right. And what I mean by that is you get space, time, energy, matter, and information all clustered together into yeah. a mathematical quasi-singularity but an undifferentiated, um, and what I would call, I'm, I like, I don't know if you know Bohm, and like, I like this to be thought of as an energy information implicate order, okay, right. that then is going to create the ultimate glue field, all right, that then is going to emanate and emerge, that, that some, there'll be a phase transition between the photons and gluons, and then that's going to create a phase transition that then accelerates a differentiated process of a pure energy information into and gives rise to the emergent material dimension of complexity originally. Right, right. Okay? Okay. So then we go from pure energy information then into particle field differentiation. All right. And this is very consistent with quantum field theory, quantum electromagnetic, I mean, uh, quantum relativistic field theory basically then characterizes particles and fields. Uh, particles and forces as disturbance is in a quantum relativistic field. Right, That's right. an energy information. Okay. Right. And then, but then that the interaction of the forces and fields that are disturbances in the energy information field then have emergent properties because they then have aggregate and differentiated form. Yep. Okay? And then when they expand to the point, then you get an organized electromagnetic around the hydrogen and helium uh, processes, you get the atomic level of emergence. So we go from layer zero, which is the singularity of energy information, into the first floor, which is the particles, and that gets mapped by the standard theory of elementary particle physics. And that right. happens in the first, you know, portion of a second. And then the portion of a second goes and there's a massive explanation. And then that inflation gives rise to the emergent, the atomic layer, okay, right. which is mostly helium and hydrogen and a little bit of lithium. All right. But this is before then stars. And then you get the explosion of cosmic microwave background radiation. OK. And that 380,000, you know, and because you get energy matter decoupling, the plasma system shifts and it expands. And then, boom, you get photonic, exp uh, the, the echo of the cosmic microwave background radiation. Yeah. Right? And then you get expansion. And now you get the formation of stars and galaxies. OK. Uh, and then there's the at least in our history, then there's a basically a 10 billion year you know, <laughs> hiatus and pause and stars are blowing up to create a heavier elements. Okay. That then organize in certain kinds of planets. And then you fast forward to 
life, I mean, you fast forward to planet Earth at 4 billion years, that has a very complicated chemistry as a function of the explosion of stars and, and other kinds of elements uh, that then, or stars giving rise to various kinds of uh, heavy elements that again attracted to our particular place, okay? And now you have complicated material arrangements that have, and what we see then is what I would call weak emergence across these levels, which are aggregates of parts that then have properties that then the properties of those forms interact and they create new kinds of forms. So we need particle physics, we need atomic physics, we need chemistry, and we need large scale material physics to map things like plants, planets and stars and things like that. That's great. That, that's all. We're all, okay, so, and then this is the material dimension that has emerged out of the energy information. And even here, it's not just matter, it's really energy information unfolding. Yes. yes. Right? And then there's the huge jump, uh, a qualitative strong, I call it strongly emergent, the strongly emergent jump into life. Yes. Right? And with yes. the strongly emergent jump into, why? Because you get complex dynamic systems with an energy information process, uh, there's an information processing storage function, right? Uh, it metabolizes energy and then it communicates, you get cell-cell communication. Right, and right. it is all of the network of information processing, complex of dynamic uh, active behavior, autopoetic, all that, all yep. that stuff. And it, it, those have causal top-down implications mm -hmm. for how things move. You had a friend you talked to me about, you said he explored the various I, if I heard this correctly, he was exploring the causal implications of purpose or teleonomic behavior or things yep, along yep. those lines, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And this is, so now, and the tree of knowledge then maps this as a fundamentally different kind of jump, okay? And philosophers would talk about supervenience. I'm, I'm talking about, no, there's actually, and this is what I really want to, you know, nail down and see. So I think that basically what you get one way to think about it is functional formal causation, a yeah. final causation, functional final causation, what I'm, or formal, fine, whatever. If you go back to the way Galileo cut off um, Aristotle's metaphysics, he yeah. left kinetic and substance, you know, you had to have matter in motion, but he right. killed final and formal causation, but those are actually net. My dog's running around here. You know, my dog's running around behaving very differently than, <laughs> than, than my table, right? Right, right, you know? right. So, yeah. so then we, and what's unique about the, you know, you talked about information. What's unique about cells is that they store information, they process information, they communicate information into cell-cell yep. networks, right? Yeah. So, are you, so are you, would you be keen then or, or you know, so that the, we get weak emergence and then the jump from chemistry to biology is actually a form of strong emergence. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know about that term, but you know. Well, it depends. Different I mean, kind of emergence. Uh, uh, so I, I think you're pointing to something that I agree with. I'm, uh, the, I'm, I, I'm not sure if the language is the same. Okay. Uh, so uh, when I talk about this in the cognitive science, there's a the philosophical distinction between weak emergence and strong emergence is this kind of distinction. Uh, in weak emergence, I can give an explanation of the relationship between the components and the gestalt. Mm -hmm. So water is wet, hydrogen and oxygen aren't, yeah, but yeah. Th that's not a mystery. I know I can explain to you the process by which hydrogen and oxygen interact, why a particular structure emerges, and why that structure has powers, right, uh, causal interactions that the components don't have. Yeah. Strong emergence, which was advocated by people like C.D. Broad and others, is yeah. right that um, there the upper layer emerges 
but there is no way of uh, explaining how it emerges. Yeah. And so this is often the kind of emergence that is invoked by property dualists who yeah, want right. to say that there's a kind of dualism. It's not a substance dualism. There's right. a kind of dualism here. And I, in what everything you've said, I would, I would, I would call all of that weak emergence in this, in this philosophical sense, because, yeah. you, right, in the sense totally. that, Yep. No, I've had this exact same problem in my head. So, <laughs> so go ahead. But, no, but, but wait, but, but, wait I, but, I, but I don't want, I, I'm not trying to be dismissive. No, I, I think don't. I'm right to point out, like there's an issue and, you know, it's like the phase transitions in matter. There's a, there's a point at which differences in degree become differences in kind. Yep. Right. And, and, and I think, and I think, you know, you, you I, I understand what you're trying to do. I, I'm just saying that the language for me is, 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 is jarring because it's not the same mapping of the way, those terms are used in the philosophy of mind. But I th what I hear you saying is there's a fundamental difference in kind between the way, you know, various chemical processes can be self-organizing and how an autopoetic thing is not just self-organizing, it's self-making. Yeah. And it's self-organized such that it seeks out the conditions that produce and protect and promote its own existence. So it has an inner teleology. It acts on purpose because it mm -hmm. is taking care of itself. It cares about different states of the world in a motivationally relevant way. Yep. That's what I hear you saying. And I think, so when I talk, when I, when I think about that, uh, and as opposed to reductionism and trying to get that, both the continuity and the important difference that's where Evan Thompson, maybe that's the friend you were alluding to, his idea of deep continuity comes in, right? Uh -huh. That there's deep continuity between the self-organizing thing and the autopoetic thing, because the autopoetic thing is a species of self-organizing, but there's also deep and important differences. Yep. And then yep. what he goes on to say is, of course, that there's a deep continuity between being a living thing and being a cognitive thing. They're right. not identical. They're not reducible. There's an important difference there. Uh, but that, but but it's not that metaphysical strong emergence that is I find very problematic because. Okay, that's I'm glad we're I'm glad we're talking about this because I'm I'm writing about it. And I'm struggling with exactly these issues because I don't want to. Here's what I and so maybe we can actually have a, a dialogos here because this actually be really helpful. Okay, so here's. Uh, I'll lay out then the case. The, it's depicted in the vision logic of the tree of knowledge. Okay, right, the vision right. logic of the tree of knowledge depicts the evolution and complexification of nature across yes. time. Yes. Okay, yes. and it shows the complexification of within dimension activity. So the so matter goes from particles into atoms into chemistries across scale, and that yes. is captured by this uh, emergent uh, complexification variance entity. That's what at least it's mapping. Okay, right. but then there is an S curve of popping, a thing pops out of it uh, that we can then trace back into Luca, the last common ancestor or whatever, yeah, where the yeah. emergence of life, whereby there is a fun, there's a there's definitely a evolutionary continuity, but there's a complexity building feedback loop and that builds a metabolic information processing communication yeah. network that creates a complex adaptive landscape that is qualitatively different in the jump from chemistry to life, then the jump was from atoms to chemistry, atom, atoms to molecules. I agree with everything. I agree with that, all of okay. that perfectly. So then uh, the question is, or I guess my, my thing would be interesting to get the same language on, how I mostly, I, I backed off, I was writing about strong emergence, I had a conversation with somebody else, uh, don't use strong emergence. Yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. so now it's like, well, all right. Yeah, no, and, and I'm tr I was trying to be, because uh, I was so annoyed with the reductionist, I was like, oh, I'll go with it. And I was like, oh, maybe I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, 
you know, uh, anchor myself into something I don't believe, you know, because there's an ontological continuity, certainly. And, and, and so, but there is a fundamental difference in relation to the within dimension but relative to between. And I can specify that it's a complexity for all three, meaning from matter to life, life to mind and mind to culture on the TOK. Yep. Each yep. one of them is represented by the emergence, an evolutionary emergence of a complexity building feedback loop that generates a complex adaptive landscape that's mediated by novel information processing systems within and communication between. Yep. 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 You know? So that's, that's, that's the kind of, I need a word for that kind of emergence. Yeah, and so we, we need to try and, and craft one together because, uh, yeah, and I get the intuition for, you know, it's, it's very analogous to Searle's uh, weak and strong AI, and you're trying to do something like that with, with those. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, the terms are taken, and yeah. they're taken, and, they're taken, and, they're, and they're, they have well-established traditions behind them. Um, uh, because, I mean, and the reason why it's, it mattered in philosophy is people are often guilty of equivocating between what the philosophers call weak emergence and strong emergence, okay. right? Uh, you know, you know, water emerges from hydrogen and oxygen. It's a totally different thing. And the immaterial soul emerges from the material properties of the brain in exactly the same way. And so, no, it's exactly not the same way. Right. Because, right, uh, I have an explanation of how hydrogen and oxygen become water. I don't have an explanation about how parts of the brain interact to produce an immaterial soul or something like that. And, and people engage in that kind of equivocation all the time. And you want to you prevent that because it's fallacious, yep. it's misleading. But again, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You are right to point to, yeah, but you know, the thing between hydrogen and oxygen, it's, there's, there's deep similarities between that emergence and the emergence uh, from, you know, from non-living things to living things. There, there's a, uh, that's why I like Evans' term. There's a continuity there. There's a similarity. But continuity also means not only are there relevant similarities, there are relevant differences. Yep. Um, so I don't know what kind of emergence to call that. I mean, uh, I, I, I guess I'd be tempted to say sort of deep continuity emergence or something, but it's not quite getting what you want. Um, well, right, I backed off and went with, uh, right now I'm going with within dimension and between dimension emergence. So that's pretty, I th if I just use the vision logic of the TOK, so within is within matter and then between is you know, from matter to life. So that's, the, that's currently where I've landed. Yeah, I mean that that sounds like it's sort of a viable stipulation, um, and, and, right? Is so I mean, what you typically do in deep continuity is you say, well, here's the vertical similarity, right? Uh, you know, both mm -hmm. are poetic things, and fire and uh, and uh, the paramecium are both self-organizing things. But here's the difference. Here's the relevant difference. Fire does not self-organize such that it will seek out the conditions that right. produce, protect, and promote it. The paramecium does, and that is a relevant difference because, in order to explain the paramecium, I have to understand its right, its internal caring, like right. sense making, things like that. Yes. That's right. And one of the things I discovered in the embedded logic of the TOK is there's actually there's continuity in the way in which the different dimensions emerge. In other words, that life emerges out of matter through a complexity building feedback loop that builds information processing communication. Yeah. And actually same with mind, when we get into what is mind and yeah. the same thing with culture. And that then, now we actually have, and actually I believe the same thing maybe with matter and energy. That's a whole nother set of uh, issues. Yeah. And if that happens, then you got deep 
continuity back with discontinuity. <laughs> but, but that's exactly right. And, and, and pointing that out, I think, is very good. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that you've got sort of higher order uh, continuity between uh, the kinds of relations you're specifying in this kind of emergence. I think that's right. I think that's very good. It's very powerful. Notice how deep continuity allows the similarities constrain you to be consistent with the physics, but the differences mean that you are committed to not carrying out any kind of reductionism. Yep. That's the whole point of this kind of hypothesis of deep continuity. Yep. And if we agree yep. that the deep continuity is not just epistemic, but ontic, then we're committed to the fact, and this is where I, I guess I want to talk to you a bit about, because mm -hmm. I think one of the defining things is, right, um, like you, you get emergence up, but you have emanation down, right? right? The idea that because the paramecium is organized the way it does, it swims around in a particular predictable pattern. It swims away from things that it senses as poison. Chemicals aren't poison in and of themselves. That doesn't make yep. any sense, right? And it swims towards chemicals that it regards as food. I'm not saying consciously regards, that's ridiculous, no. right? But, right, and so it's doing, and I can't, I can't explain its behavior without invoking poison and food and the fact that it's a living oh. thing, right? Uh, and, and so what that means is the way the matter is moving through space and time in the paramecium requires these higher level structural functional organization. Why is the matter moving this way? Well, it's moving this way because the paramecium is trying to avoid poison and obtain food. Now, is that in any way inconsistent with the underlying chemistry? No, but chemistry doesn't have an ontology of food or poison it's there's no you look for all you want through chemistry and you won't get the ontological entities food and poison yep. but i need those in order to explain why the paramecium is moving the way it is which ultimately explains why is this piece of matter and energy located here in space and time actually so this gave me a really interesting idea you know i built this thing called the periodic table of behavior we talked yeah. a little bit about it, but yeah. essentially what it does is as follows. And the reason I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt you, but we can come back oh, to ahead. this in terms of, um, so I, here's the two associations that I had off of what you were saying. I'm also reading David Douche recently, you know, he did like the, and he, he's definitely not a reductionist. He's got a multiverse thing that I'm trying to wrap my head around, which I don't really right, buy, right. but, um, but he's, he loves, uh, the level of a good explanation is an ontological essentially level for him. Like, right, yeah. And that, you know, in other words, he has the knowledge. Okay. So here you were saying is, Hey, and this is what he would say also. And what I would say in relationship to justification, we build knowledge systems that are corresponding to particular levels, particular yeah. kinds of behavior, object field change that we observe and functionally map. And then those patterns, those functional structural relations, we construct explanations for in relation and they're required to have sense making. Okay. Yep. So here's the actual the prediction. If that's the case, then we actually should be able to align the kinds of explanations that we have in order across the levels and dimensions, okay? Yes. Meaning, and we should be able to maybe move up one or down one, but moving more than that starts to create real problems. So you can actually then align the kind of vocabulary um, that people use with a predicted analysis that emerges out of the periodic table of behavior. And what right. that the predicted analysis is that there is a foundational hole 
which then gives rise to a part and group relation. So you get three different levels of analysis, part, whole, group, across right. scale for yeah. each of the different dimensions. Okay? That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you get particle, atom, molecule across scale all the way up to a galaxy. All right. right, 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 right. right. Then you move over, you get gene, cell, right. multi-cell across up to ecology for right, right. biology. Okay. Right. Then you get neural net, yeah. animal mind, right. group mind, okay, groups of animals across behavioral ecologies. All right. right. Then right. you get justification, human no person, groups right. of people across. Okay. Right. right. So then you then you then you get culture exactly. So then each one of these then has the that gives rise to twelve different floors. The first floor is particle physics. Okay. The second floor is atomic matter, then chemistry, then out to scale. Then you get right. genetics. You get cytology. You get um, bot botany and uh, mycelia, uh, the fungi. <laughs> study. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then you get uh, neuroscience. And then you get the core of ethology, comparative psychology, and then sociobiology. You know? right. And then you get cognitive, human cognitive science, you get human psychology, and then you get the social sciences. Right. Um, all of those. The, what activated my thought was that if what you were saying is that, that we apply these systems of justification, which is exactly what I would say, or whatever language you want to use, that are then operative across the level, then they should maybe hold plus one and minus one in terms of their utility. But if we jump, you cannot do quantum mechanics of this conversation. That's just exactly. absolutely insane, exactly. right? There's nothing, there's no sense to be had between that knowledge system and this knowledge system. Right, because science depends on inductive generalizations, which depend on identity claims and deep continuity says what you actually have is and I think this is an ontological factor. We maybe come back to it. What you actually have between the levels is you have a, important similarity and differences. And as you, and the point, the problem with similarities, deep continuity is similarity is ultimately not transitive. So I can't generalize all the way across because the identities are are being gradually overwhelmed by the differences as I move between the levels. Uh -huh. Now I think that that points to our funda a fundamental issue uh, that I, I is which is that. I mean, whenever we're doing anything epistemic, we're ultimately confronting similarity. And what we're doing is making judgments about whether or not we're going to treat that similarity as an, as an identity or a difference. Okay. And so when we treat it as an identity, we claim the identity is more relevant and therefore we can generalize. And, we, we, and when we don't, we treat it, we say the difference is more relevant and therefore, and here's the point I want to make. And this is, a, this is, I think, a devastating argument against reductionism, because reductionism was ultimately claiming that ultimately, ontologically, the identities are real and the differences are not. That would mean that there is a logic or an algorithm for deciding similarity, and we've had arguments for a very long time showing there is no such thing. Fascinating. Is, yeah. Because if I drop to logic, and this is Goodman's point from way back in the 70s, if I drop to logic, any two objects are, you know, share properties 
to an unlimited number or don't share properties to an unlimited number. And I, or we decide which are the relevant, you know, ones we want to compare or not when we make judgments of similarities, there's no algorithm for this. There's no logic of similarity and therefore trying to claim ontologically that somehow we should always be choosing these identities within the similarities that reality presents to us, I think is a fallacious point. It's a fallacious point. Hmm. Yeah, no, that certainly makes, that's a good, that's a, not an angle that I've taken, but that certainly makes good sense to me. So yeah. what, what dip continuity does for me is it's an epistemological position that gives priority to similarity over identity hmm. okay. and difference. And then it says you have to you have to take that as the primary sort of touching point between your ontology and your epistemology, mm -hmm. and you have to construct your epistemology and your ontology accordingly. Mm. All right. So um, when you so if we can, all right, that that makes good sense. When you when you have you encountered or have you developed any vocabulary? If we go back to the difference between the jumps between, you know, within a dimension, okay, yep. from to the jumps between the dimensions, if we want to use that. Yeah, yeah. Have you encountered or have you internalized that, A, that distinction, and then B, um, a way of framing it that, that resonates with your own well, what, yeah, well, what I would say is, uh, I mean, you're doing the, and I mean, this as a compliment and you know it because you're my friend, right? Uh, you know, the, uh, you're doing the Aristotelian project of something like the Great Chain of Being, which is both an Aristotelian and a Neoplatonic project, by the way. We're doing, uh, an, we're doing Neo-Aristotelian Platonic stuff here, John. Yeah. <laughs> because we're ultimately trying to see the connection between, we're trying to find, because intelligibility is both an epistemological thing and an ontological thing. And yep. that's what we're trying to talk about here. We're trying to talk about the ontology of intelligibility as yep. that, right, that is simultaneously shared by, you know, our ontology and our, our epistemology. Mm. But so, but what I, well, I have a specific species of the, the more generic problem that you're tackling. And so this is the problem that arises in cognitive science. <clears throat> now, uh, where it starts is it, it might seem like a weird place, but it, it starts in the, what's called the simulation problem. How can I distinguish between a, a mere simulation of cognition and an actual instance of it? And this, of course, is highly relevant in sure. the whole debate about you know strong AI versus weak AI and things like right. that. And uh, you know, a friend and colleague of mine, Chris, there's a long argument here and, and there's reasons why the Turing test won't decide this and blah, 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 blah. Very good reason, by the way, because uh, the Turing test actually presupposes a solution to the problem rather than actually affording it. Um, and if you want to talk about that sometime, I'm happy to come back and talk about that. But my, fresh, my friend Chris Green pointed out that why we can't decide this is because we don't have what he calls the criterion of the cognitive. Some people call it the mark of the mental. I like the criterion of the cognitive because it's a little bit more precise because mm -hmm. the mental includes the conscious and the unconscious okay. and that gets problematic. <clears throat> and, and he says this, but we have, we notice the difference between a criterion and a definition. We, we don't yet, we, we, don't, we only have a definition of matter when physics is complete. And I, I, I'm a Perseid. I don't think we'll ever complete that. It'll always be like, you know, converging towards the ever retreating horizon, which is fine. 
-hmm. But the thing is, we have a criterion, right? So one of the things we did in the scientific revolution is we, and one of the ways we sort of broke, and I wrote, I really like Aristotle, so you know that I'm saying this in, a, in an affectionate way. The one of the ways we broke kind of a death grip and afforded science is, right, we, we, we made this distinction between natural things and things that were created on purpose. And, and that was part of what, what Galilei was doing. And I agree with you, it's problematic. But what that did was it a allowed us to see that a lot of the universe is not behaving teleologically. Now, we might be making the wrong conclusion and saying that none of it is. We can come back to that. But we, it, you know, we discovered that, wow, actually, a lot of the universe isn't happening teleologically. That's why having organisms, agents that perform teleologically is a fundamental difference. Totally. Right? And so the, the thing that's going on there, right, is we have a criterion of the cognitive, right, which, it, which is, sorry, we have a criterion of the physical. The physical is the non-teleological, blah, blah. This is how we pick it out, how we get it, how we, how, we, how we create what's called systematic import, how we carve up the world into categories that will have stable properties that allow us to make the inductive generalizations that science seeks. Totally. Now, the problem with that is we don't have a corresponding criterion of the cognitive. We don't have, give me some, uh, I know you have a proposal, but I'm, I'm trying to show No, 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 yeah, no, this is great, brilliant. Yeah. We, we don't have a, we don't have a, and this is Green's point, we don't have a, 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 a criterion of the cognitive. Well, cog cognition is that which uses representations. There's lots of bona fide, Intellectually respected cognitive scientists will say, no, we don't use representations, mm -hmm. right? Well, it's information processing. That doesn't pick out cognition. There's information processing happening all over the place, all over the universe. That's not what we mean. Oh, well, it, it requires consciousness. No, it doesn't. We think a lot of our own cognition, et cetera. And so what we have is we have all these proposals, right? Yep. That have fallen by the wayside. So, and then a good friend of mine, Dan Chiappi, and, uh, and it, uh, a professor we both shared, uh, Andy Kukler, said, well, the problem why we can't get a criterion of the cognitive is, right, is that we can't carve the mind at its joints. We can't figure out how to get it in a way in which uh, we, we can see how it functions, how it works. Mm -hmm. And that this is the famous frame problem in uh, cognitive science because every piece of information is potentially relevant to every other piece mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and potentially relevant to your action. But this is the problem that I care about. This is the problem that I call the problem of relevance realization. Yep. So I made a proposal, uh, which is this. We keep using all these other criteria of the cognitive and we keep bumping into the problem of relevance realization. And ultimately, and you and I both, you helped me to think of it as more as recursive relevance realization, and I thank you for that. And I said, well, why don't we do the reverse? Why don't we take relevance realization as the criterion and then try to explain all the other things from it? Yep. And so I'm proposing that relevance realization is the criterion of the cognitive, yep. that what picks out cognitive things from non-cognitive things is a capacity for a recursive relevance realization. And so in a very real sense, that's a species of the thing you've been talking about. Yep. Because it's like, well, because here, here's what I mean. Here's why, here's why we run into this problem. Because if I try to explain relevance realization using mental terms, 
I'll make the homuncular fallacy. Totally. I'll just explaining it. I need to explain the cognitive emerging out of non-cognitive processes, or I'm just going to be giving a circular explanation. Right. But I need the cognitive processes to be relevantly different from the non-cognitive processes from which they emerge. I argue that something very analogous about how evolution works. We, I don't yep. need to get into the specifics right now. You and I have talked at length about this, but that's exactly right. I bumped into this and I've internalized right. the problem exactly that way. So, okay. So now let's, yeah, let's then watch our systems then do this thing that they do, which is really, yeah. really cool. Okay. Right. So um, yes, I, you know, I, I bitch all the time about what the hell does cognitive mean? What does mind mean? What does behavior mean? Right? right. Okay. So then I stumble on the tree of knowledge and this four cone thing with these joints actually yes. sets the stage for, especially I'm stuck inside the problem of psychology, this joint thing between life and mind. Okay. Yes. Is yes. what's actually with Skinner. I, I hated Skinner for a while. And then I got, uh, then I got, conf you know, I was, cause I was a cognitivist and then I fell into what he was actually saying, which actually right. operant theory basically is Skinner's behavior essentially. So for yeah, Skinner, yeah which is then basically the environment creates the contingencies and then there's a commerce, so he originally described it, with, uh, with the animal and then that commerce exchange is what pulls the animal in whatever behavioral selection path that it finds yep. itself on. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. exactly. You know, and, and then, it, then there's the whole problem of where you get into animals and then you go from the primates to persons, right? Yep. You know, yep. okay. And then the TOK says actually, just like there's a modern evolutionary synthesis, Okay, that's natural selection operating on genetic combinations across the generations. There's behavioral selection that's operating on the neurocognitive structure, okay, yeah. that then builds animal, animals with brains and complex active bodies moving around in the world, doing all the things that we call mental, okay? Yeah. Yeah. So then I was like, well, and that, then this thing called mind now, capital M mind, is the third dimension of complexity that corresponds to what an animal behavior it yep. explodes onto the world at the Cambrian explosion, basically. You yep, know? Yep. I mean, there's shit before that, but they're not really complex active bodies with not brains or jellyfish and little worms and, you know, yep. planaries right on the base. And then it explodes into like crabs. Okay. Right. So, all right. So then what did I call this? I was like, well, I, I can see this as a bridge between behaviorism and the a base simplistic neurocognitive functionalism. Yep. Okay. Yep, yep. Neurocognitive functionalism. What did I mean by that? Well, I jammed in all the cognitive terms. It's like, well, it's an information processing system that engages some kind of predictive processing that creates an information integrated network that creates semantic stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, what the cognitive people mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally, <laughs> okay? totally. Mediated by the nervous system that then has the overactivity of the agent arena environment relation. Right. right. And then that's just a cognitive then is a placeholder, okay? Yes. Until I'm walking down my goddamn dog listening to relevance realization, <laughs> right? And I'm like, what is the functional structural organization of that information processing that's embedded in the nervous system? Right, that, right, right. Boom, and then what that does then is it takes this whole, we'll talk about plugging stuff together without circular definitions. It takes an entire other line of development, right? 
and then inserts it into the system. And then when I'm like, oh my God, I'm doing behavioral investment theory, mostly from a scanner with a neurocognitive switch. Now I switch right back into the first person perspective across re recursive relevance realization and shoot up into human cognitive neuroscience, I mean, cognitive science. It's like, boom. Exactly. And I mean, and we did a lot of that, <clears throat> especially in Untangling the World Knot, we, we, where we sew those two together and we, we make, I think together a plausible claim of how you can go up from the neurocog neurocognitive functional level uh, up to the the, the consciousness, um, which right. Then, uh, then all of a sudden we get it integrated. Now there's a focal, and now it's an embodied base of sentience. And then you pop into an adverbial yeah, viewer yeah. of an adjectival experience, yeah. and then you get a self modeling, and then you get a narrative and propositional language, and all goddamn we have a coherent naturalist ontology done that can restore the human soul and spirit. I think, so. I think that's exactly right. I mean, so part of the work that needs to be done still, though, is to how relevance may map into meaning. I think I can make a good argument for how it maps into meaning in life, the uh, existential meaning, uh, somewhat of an argument about how it maps into semantic meaning. Um, and then I think in terms of that, we also want to talk about, you know, how we can ground notions like self-transcendence, how we can ground notions of you know you know finding a proper home or place, and maybe we can get notions of spirit out of that ground that grounded notion of self transcendence, <clears throat> soul out of that you know that grounded notion of belonging, fittedness, proper placeness, um, uh, and and things like that. So I mean, we're, and we're we're exploring this in the the, the new series we're going to release with Chris. Um, uh, 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 the elusive eye, because we want to try and talk. So there's this intermediary entity, even within psychology. The, I, I think I was reading one article, which the most cited construct and the least explained construct in all of psychology, which is the self. Self. Mm -hmm. And the self, in some sense, mediates in a way that we need to explicate the three of us together, and all, hopefully also with the help of many other people contributing it. It somehow mediates in this deep continuity way we've been talking about. Uh, between mind and terms like spirit and terms like soul. And um, and I think getting the proper explication of the relationship between mind and self and between self and spirit and soul, um, I think that's a central task. And I think if we can make some progress on that, I think that will feed back into making more plausible this kind of naturalism that we're, we, I, we seem to be agreeing on that we're proposing together. All right, so let's, uh, as we begin to wrap this up, let's make it, let's say, this is a, to me, it's a beautiful journey. I mean, you know, right. it's a beautiful yeah. journey. Uh, and so I, you know, I think we're in agreement that the ont the ontological, uh, philosophical, scientific understanding that comes off the enlightenment is basically broken and chaotic with regards to yeah. giving us a coherent yeah. ontology, a coherent yeah, naturalistic yeah. ontology, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think that, you know, what then emerges between us and synergy and other people around us, but there is a, there's a real unique synergy here with your cognitive science philosophy and my psychology, psychotherapy reality here. Right, right. Know? We cover a lot of territory and to the extent that there is a lock and key function, which I would just, you know, which we were just to me, which we were just embodying. Okay? Yeah, 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 then yeah. you have a new, now the issue is, well, okay, 
each of us or whatever in our communities. And then it's sort of like, okay, if we can bring communities that actually can carve away and, you know, keep me from making a mistake on my strong emergence or whatever, you know, but then that, but to see if the architecture of understanding is there and the synergy holds, and as you get into it with other collective intelligence pieces, the resonance of coherence holds. Okay. Then you actually have a emerging transcendental beacon that hooks into the natural science worldview. And then, and then if you want, you know, if there's the deep theoretical work, we have to define mind, we have to find psychology, mind, behavior, cognition, you know, self, and then into soul and spirit, you know? Yeah. And then if we have those kinds of frames, the criterion for them, the clarity about talking about them, and then the bridge to then what that means in relationship to the practices and the belonging and the community, the re-establishment of, of a connective nourishing flow between our worldviews and each other is to me what revitalizes the soul spirit i think that's good an idea came to me what about calling that kind of emergence you want to put your finger to conciliant emergence yeah that's interesting yeah Mm -hmm. well certainly i mean the whole term unified does come from consilience i mean that's actually where the term unified emerges from so, and certainly that is the, you know, you, what the, the emergent emanation, actually, I was actually catching us whether or not there, because there's a particular kind of new information emanation. Yeah. Um, I wonder yeah. if there's a emergent emanative loop um, that I would, that's it. When you were speaking before, I was like, oh, it's like I am speaking to an emergent emanative feedback loop in a little way that's different than the with it when I'm talking between than within. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. actually caught my ear. That's interesting. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, that's a. I, I will. I will be mulling over the various terms, and I'll be undoubtedly <laughs> texting you in a hypomanic state of excitement at some point. <laughs> that's good. I look forward. I look forward to those texts. <laughs> so, all right, friend. Well, I think this is a pretty good time for us to. Um, I agree. Good. Bring this conversation. Thank you so much for your oh, thank time you so much. and your. You know, this is a, this to me. I mean, I thought there was a couple of uh, certainly. I felt a couple of jolts of, of yep. potential dialogos about yeah, the, dialogos. What, what might be yeah. happening here. Places, for sure. And certainly, for good sure. Di- dialogue and, and dialectic exchange. Yeah, so, very much. All right. Well, I enjoyed it a lot, and uh, I wish you all the success you know, on this podcast. I hope. Oh, it, well, I hope it flourishes. Thank, thank you. Well, I certainly appreciate you talking with Greg. So there it is. <laughs> all Great. right.